The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Now, I'm sure that you probably all have heard about seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly churches, right? You heard those terms before? You understand what they mean? Well, Wikipedia says church growth is a movement within evangelical Christianity which aims to develop methods to grow churches, look at this, based on business marketing strategies. You think that's a good way to grow a church? You know, I've always kind of felt like, you know, in Matthew 16... The Lord said He was going to build His church. He told Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so I figured His church, He can build it. I don't really know that we need business marketing strategies. Wikipedia was on to say, one prominent example is the seeker-sensitive approach. This is to church growth. This is the reason they're doing this. It supposedly helps grow the church. Which aims to make churches more accessible and sensitive to the needs of spiritual seekers. Alright? So, seeker-friendly basically means they don't teach anything that will make you uncomfortable. (laughs) That doesn't leave a lot, does it? So, you're not going to hear teachings about sin. You're not going to hear teachings on election. You're not going to hear teachings on preterism. It's not going to challenge you to live on a higher level of holy living. It's not going to get deep into the Scripture at all. It's going to be very surface. It's going to be mostly feel-good messages. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound like the way that Yeshua taught? He didn't seem to be very seeker-sensitive in this chapter 6 that we're looking at in John. I'll tell you the truth, in this chapter, he seems to really be more seeker-insensitive. He really does. And just to let you know, this morning, this message probably won't be too seeker-sensitive. Okay? Because, you know, we're teaching the Bible, and the Bible is not too seeker-friendly along that line. Alright? John chapter 6 is a unit. And it starts out with Yeshua's popularity at its height. There were huge crowds following him. And as you get to the end of the chapter, you got about 12 people left. What in the world happened? Well, the Lord gave a message. And this message thinned out the crowd, big time. Alright? So he begins his Galilean ministry in John 6 with a crowd of around 20,000 people. Thousands of people witnessed firsthand that incredible miracle where He fed every one of them. With fish and bread, listen, that He had literally created. So the, the, the meal they're eating was a creation of God. That was some great bread. That was some really good fish. And so they ate this and they're just amazed. They had watched Him heal people all day long. Thousands and thousands of people are there hearing Him speak, watching the miracles. And thousands and thousands of people at the end of the day rejected Him and left. So what happened? Well, Yeshua obviously didn't know much about church growth. I mean, He really violates all the principles of church growth. See, most of our seeker-friendly megachurches, they really start out really small. And then they grow to large numbers. But Yeshua starts out really large. Huge crowd. And he teaches it down to a few. That's something you won't learn how to do in seminary. Okay? I mean, they're changing all the rules to the game. You know, you gotta fit in with the culture and you gotta relate to the people and, you know, you gotta get rid of this thing because this is a barrier to the people and, you know, and you gotta dress down, wear your jeans with your holes in them and stuff, you know, so people can relate to you. And all this has nothing to do with the scripture. See, bottom line is I think all you need to do is take the Bible and teach it. 
and let the chips fall where they will, okay? That's what we're supposed, that's what we're called to do is teach the word of God. Look at John 6:24. So when the crowd saw that Yeshua was not there, this is after he had fed them, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Yeshua. So here the crowd is seeking Yeshua. Do you think he knew how to deal with people? I mean, do you think he understood people and you know how to talk to them and how to deal with them? If he did, why does he end up driving this whole crowd away? What went wrong? Well, as you study this chapter, it's easy to see that Yeshua wasn't seeker-sensitive at all. As a matter of fact, he seems to do all he can do in this chapter to chase people away with his teaching. Really. He says some tough things. He could have said it differently. He could have watered it down. I mean, he had a good crowd there. You know, that's the whole point is to keep them, isn't it? No, not really. Well, let's look at this. This is the final text, the final section in John chapter 6. Like I said, 6 is a unit, so we're closing it out this morning. Verse 59 starts, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, Lazarus has already established that this discourse took place in Capernaum. He told us that in verse 24. Capernaum was the home of Yeshua's family and, and his home base now. So he tells us that this took place there, and he's probably talking here about the entire discourse. All that he's been saying from 27 down to 58. He's probably in the synagogue. And these crowds are packing the synagogue to hear him teach. Now our English word, synagogue, comes from the transliterating the Greek, synagogue, which means a bringing together. In its earliest usage, synagogue did not refer to a building, didn't refer to a place of gathering, but rather to a group of people who were gathered together. Now later, as buildings for gatherings developed, synagogue became used of the gathering place as well as the people gathered. So, synagogue is very similar to our English word for church. We use church to refer to a building, which is really not a good usage of it because the, church, the building is not a church. The building is a place where the church meets. But you understand when we say that, okay, that we are the church. We meet in a, in a building, all right? Here's a picture of a synagogue. Here's what we have to understand. The synagogue is not the temple, all right? Very distinct places. Synagogue is a completely different place. The origins of the synagogue building and the worship associated with it are kind of obscure, but it seems clear that the synagogue building and the meeting place started during the Babylonian exile. So the children of Israel are away from their land, they're away from their temple, and they develop this idea of the synagogue because they want to get together and worship God. Now, by the time of Christ, it was the synagogue and not the temple that was the central institution for Jewish worship. And this makes sense because even the Jews living in Israel would only go to Jerusalem three times a year. And most of them only went once a year. But they went to the synagogue every week, every Sabbath. They'd go to the synagogue to worship. And the Sabbath synagogue service had a general order to it. They had this order that they used every week. It started by reciting the Shema. You all know what the Shema is, right? From Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That was fundamental to Judaism. Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. That was accompanied by blessings that were spoken in connection with those passages. And then formal and written prayers were read. Then there was a reading from the Law and the Prophets. After the reading, there was a sermon. Sound familiar? That's kind of like what the church does today, doesn't it? Well, the ruler of the synagogue, the synagogue had a leadership structure, and the ruler of the synagogue could ask someone to give the sermon. I hope they gave him time to prepare something, you know, but... Or if a person wanted to teach, they could ask the ruler, I'd like to say, teach today. It seems at that point the ruler could recognize people to further contribute. They could comment, they could share, they could teach. And the service concluded with the benediction. Now see, the synagogue was a perfect place 
for the gospel to be spread. Where else would you find a crowd of people interested in the Hebrew Scriptures? And where and you have a place where a visitor can come and share and teach. And I think we should probably view Yeshua's teaching ministry here very similar to what we see later in Paul's practice in the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue. He's teaching all the time. Why? Well, how's he get to do that? Because that was how their structure was set up. And so he's going in the synagogue. He's presenting the gospel. Same thing Christ is doing. Both men announced God's revelation to the lost religious Jews and appealed to them to believe the scripture, believe the gospel using the Hebrew scriptures. Now, archaeologists have uncovered what they believe may be the foundations of this synagogue talked about in chapter 6 here in Capernaum. And visitors to the site of Capernaum now can view a reconstructed edifice that dates back to the third or fourth, uh, three or four hundred years later in this thing. So, they think they found this synagogue that Yeshua was teaching it here at Capernaum in his hometown. All right, now that he just kind of gives us verse fifty-nine as letting us know this is all taught in the synagogue. Verses sixty to seventy-one present the last material of Yeshua's ministry in Galilee, according to the fourth gospel. This is the end of his Galilean ministry. Verse sixty says, "Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said." This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? <laughs> that gives me a hint. It wasn't too seeker sensitive, right? All right. It says his disciples. The word disciples here, mathetes, means a learner or a follower. <clears throat> at the most elementary level, a disciple is someone who is at that point following Yeshua. Many followed Yeshua as his disciples, but listen, they were not believers in him. <clears throat> they had not trusted him. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The term disciple is not synonymous with believer. We see that in verse 64 where Yeshua says that some of these disciples did not believe in him. They were following him because they were curious. Mostly they were following because he gave them a free lunch. And so they're following him, but they hadn't trusted him. We talked about that when we did that message on the narrow road several weeks back. So if you want more detail, you go back and listen to that. But here's what I want you to understand. And I think a lot of people don't get this. You can be a believer. You can have trusted in Christ and not be a disciple. I think most believers are not disciples. They're not really following Christ. Because to be a follower of Christ is to live out his teaching. Alright? But, you know, you can be a disciple and not be a believer. There's a lot of people that, you know, they're following Christ or attempting to follow Christ and do what, you know, certain things, you know, but they haven't trusted him. But all believers are called to be disciples, to follow Christ. So don't mistake the crowds having sought out and followed Yeshua as being an expression of their faith in Him. They didn't have any faith in Him. Yeshua said that. They followed me because I gave them a free lunch. That's why they're following me. Alright, so when they heard us, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? The word difficult is from the Greek word skleros. It has the idea of being both hard and harsh. This is a harsh statement. The things that he said, they're saying it's harsh. Hard to understand. It's not so much, you know, what he's saying here is not so much it's hard to understand, but it's hard to accept. They knew what he was saying, they just, they're not going to accept that. Now, scleros is found in medical language, meaning stiff, dried out, inflexible, hard. In the figurative sense, this word is used as a word for, again, harsh or unpleasant. It's objectable. It's offensive. Not hard to understand. They are saying what Yeshua is saying. It's not seeker sensitive. This is tough stuff. This is offensive stuff that He is saying to them. Now, what is meant here by difficult statement? What did Yeshua say that was difficult for them to accept? Huh? Listen, everything he said was offensive. I mean, really, go back and read this message. He's not catering to these crowds. He's not trying to make them feel comfortable in any way. All right? 
If you read this discourse, you see that he's, it's difficult. For example, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he's basically saying to these people, well, you're not coming because you're not given by the Father. He also said, no man can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. He makes these statements in response to their unbelief. In other words, the reason you don't believe because God hasn't called you. That's offensive, isn't it? As if to say, I know you don't believe, but it's because you're not chosen. And they're like, what? That's not a very sensitive thing to say to an unbeliever. You don't get this, right? You don't even understand what I'm saying. That's all right. You're not chosen. What? That'd be offensive. I mean, what about my personal free will? So he said a lot of things that are difficult, but I think the difficult statement, I think the thing he's focusing on here refers primarily to his statement about eating flesh and drinking blood. All right? In verse 53, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, <coughs> excuse me, and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. And then he says, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? What was it about this teaching, this statement that was intolerable to an Orthodox Old Covenant Jew? Well, the people believed he was speaking literally. Okay? What he, they think he's talking about cannibalism here, which was forbidden under the law of Sinai. No flesh or blood of any kind was to be consumed or you were to be kicked out of the community. So this is a difficult saying. And we talked about this last time. You know, I mean, can you think of something more difficult than a teacher to say? Hey, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, get, you, you don't have anything to do with me. What? What are you talking about? Now, a Catholic commentary on this verse, we talked a little bit about this last week, says this. It's obvious that the crowd, including some of Jesus' disciples, believed Jesus was speaking literally and not symbolically. I agree with that, alright? They say the crucial point is that when they walked away, Jesus didn't stop them. I agree with that. So far, so good. Now here's where we're going to part company, alright? If he was only speaking symbolically and then let them leave, he would be perpetuating a lie which is a sin. Jesus is without sin. They left and he let them leave because he was not speaking symbolically, but literally. See, the Catholic Church takes Yeshua literally. We have to literally eat his flesh. We have to literally eat his blood, drink his blood. And see, they believe that during the Mass, the priest blesses those crackers and grape juice, and it turns into blood and flesh. That's quite powerful for the priest to be able to do that, okay? But they say very clearly in their literature, still looks and tastes like bread, Still looks and tastes like grape juice, but it's not. Just so you know. Because you might be thinking, well, this sure looks like grape juice to me. No, no, it does. But it's been transformed. Transubstantiation. See, they're saying if if he was talking symbolically, he would have got went after him. Wait, 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 you guys are misunderstanding what I'm saying. That's how they view it. He was speaking symbolically, but he didn't care that they left because they didn't get what he was saying. And like I said, I think he uses this strict language to try to get them to see, you don't follow me at all. You're not getting anything I'm saying. Now, do you remember from last week what I said it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood? What's it mean? It means to believe in him, alright? Because what is promised to those who eat his flesh and drink his blood is the same thing as promised to those who believe. That is eternal life. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a metaphorical way of referring to believing in him. Augustine wrote, believe and you have eaten. That's what it's all about. To believe in Yeshua, to come to Yeshua, to eat this bread, to feed on him, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, all of these actions result in the same outcome. Eternal life. So when he talks about eating and drinking his flesh and blood, He means that we must trust. And I think the reason he's using these is because he's focusing specifically on his sacrificial death. Blood. I have to die. You have to trust in my death. I'm dying on your behalf. And that's the only way you're going to have eternal life. Receive him as the one who gives his life for you. That's what he's saying. 
And I think Yeshua is hinting here. He's trying to get them to understand he's going to die a violent death. He connected the importance of belief in him with his atoning sacrifice. Now, the idea that their Messiah would die as a sacrifice was a huge problem to the Jews. Big problem. They were utterly unwilling to accept that. You know, even today, when you are told that you have eternal life through the blood of Christ, people get offended at that. I'm not trusting in somebody else's death. That's ridiculous. I'll take care of this myself. No, you can't take care of yourself. You have to trust what He did for you, which was His sacrificial death. In verse 61, but Yeshua, conscious that his disciples grumbled, so he knows what they're doing. They're grumbling. Oh, this is a hard saying. We can't, we don't understand this. He said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? He's conscious. All right, Yeshua knows what they're thinking. We see this all through. All right, he's got the spirit without measure. He has the gift of understanding these things, and he's, you know, he's getting it. He knows what they're, what's going on with them. All right? And so he responds to them. This caused you to stumble? This stuff I'm saying to you, is it too hard? The word stumble here is scandalizo. It's a common word in the New Testament. It translates stumble, offend, fall away. Now, I I hate to even use the word offend here because that's a word in our culture that everybody's offended. Oh, I'm offended at that. People are offended at everything. that's, That's not what this word means. This word offend means to fall away. In other words, I just can't even handle i got to leave. This thing is so repulsive to me. We get our English term scandalize from the Greek root here. The essential meaning virtually every time this word is used in the New Testament is that something happens that negatively affects someone's relationship with Christ. I'm offended by that. I'm, falling, I'm stumbling. I'm tripping. Tripping in my spiritual walks. Tripping because I can't handle this stuff. He says, does this cause you to stumble? What is this? What is causing them to be offended? What's causing them to fall away? Well, I think bottom line here is what he said about the flesh and blood, but what we're saying is the flesh and blood refers to the atonement. So what's causing them to stumble is the doctrine of the atonement. That's the idea that the Messiah would die on a cross. So it was the idea of the cross that's causing them to stumble. Hey, you know, Paul taught something about that, didn't he? Look at 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. And the Jews did not want to hear about a Messiah that died. Okay? They didn't want to hear it. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. So the Jews stumbled. The Jews were offended. The Jews fell away because of the cross. But it was only the Jews who had been given to Messiah, only the Jews who had been drawn by the Father, only the Jews who had been called, who believed and didn't stumble. Look what Paul says in verse 24. Alright, so Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. The called is the same thing as in our text as the drawn, as those that are given to Christ. This is talking about divine election. So it's a stumbling block, but if you're called, you get it. Because God called you. Simple as that. Now look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. Later on he says this, But by His doing you are in Christ Yeshua. That's an important, important text. Get this. Notice carefully what this verse is saying. It's by His doing. Who's doing? God. The Father. Yahweh. By His doing you're in Christ. What? Yeah, it's His doing. Therefore, any boast we have is not in ourselves, but it's in the Lord. Literally, this text says, from Him you are in Christ. He creates the union by His grace. We embrace it by faith. It's about Christ. He's the one who does it. He brings us into this union. Now, Paul also wrote in Galatians 5.11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So here again, we see the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews because they can't accept the idea of a suffering Messiah, much less a crucified one. That's repulsive to them. Here's what we have to understand, people. The cross in that day was an obscenity. 
You wouldn't speak the words in those days. Even the Romans wouldn't speak it. Now today, I know it's like a symbol of jewelry. People wear crosses around their necks, put them up all over the place. In that day, it was an obscenity not to be uttered in polite speech because it's a form of execution and it was a brutal form of execution. When I understand the implications of the cross, what I'm saying is, I am a moral, mortal failure. I am morally bankrupt. I'm unrighteous. I'm damned. And I realize there's nothing I can do to change it. Therefore, I have to reach out to Yeshua and His death for me on the cross in order to experience salvation. Because there's nothing in me. I need this for me. The meaning of the cross is this. There's nothing you can do to make a good showing. You cannot perform well. This is, this is offensive to people. Today it's still offensive to people. All you have is the cross. You either trust in the cross and what Christ did or you're damned. So the message of the cross is offensive. It is now. It was then. And that's why seeker-sensitive people don't want to talk about it too much, okay? Verse 62, what then? If you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. So He says, does this cause you to be offended? Does this make you stumble? Well, let me ask you this. What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? What's He talking about in verse 62? No? Well, I think that's part of it. He's talking here about the ascension. What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? So He's talking about the ascension. So let me ask you this. How does the ascension cause people to stumble? Does this cause you to stumble, He says? What's going to happen then if you see the ascension? Huh? You're scratching your head thinking, I don't know. I think, wow, that's really cool. I mean, how is that? I don't get. Let me see if I can connect the dots for you, okay? The Pillar New Testament commentary states this, the Greek preserves the condition, but no conclusion. So it's possible to understand the argument in one of two ways. Number one, Jesus' ascension will make the offense even greater. I think that's, I think number one is how he's using it here. The second one, and it can be translated by the Greek either way, but I think the context leans to one. one. All right, number two, Jesus' ascension will reduce or remove the offense. So when you see the ascension, you know, ah, now I get it. No, you're not going to, unless God does a work in your heart, you don't get anything, okay? So, the ascension is going to make the offense greater? How's that going to happen? I think what Yeshua is saying here is that if the disciples find his language about eating flesh and drinking blood offensive, what are they going to think when they see him dying on a cross? Which is his way of ascending to the place he was before. See, that's the supreme scandal. However offensive the linguistic expression eating flesh and drinking blood may be, how much more offensive is a Messiah hanging on a tree being crucified? Under the curse of God. They knew the Scripture said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They couldn't understand that. See, the very idea is outrageous. It's blasphemy. It's obscenity. Their view of Messiah was that He would conquer Israel's enemy and usher in an age of peace and prosperity like the kingdom of David and Solomon. Not that He would die, especially not that He would die as a criminal on a cross. They can't can't accept that. So the reason the ascension would cause an even worse offense is because the path of the ascension must go through the crucifixion. It's got to. Yeshua's crucifixion was, in a sense, the first step to His ascending back to the Father. Notice what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Philippians 2.8 Being found in appearance as a man, talking about Yeshua here, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Yeshua humbled Himself in obedience to the Father and died on a cross. Now watch the next verse. For this reason. For what reason? Because He humbled Himself and He died on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted Him 
bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Because of Christ's humility at the cross, the Lord exalted him. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 11, the exaltation of Christ. The crown, his ascension, follows the cross, but you have to understand the two are inseparable. He doesn't get to the ascension without the cross. Because he humbled himself, for that reason, God exalted him. And the words here, highly exalted, are from the Greek, hupersuo, and it means to elevate to a surpassing position, to exalt beyond all others, to exalt to the highest maximum majesty. Now, this particular exaltation is so grand that this word is not used anywhere else in the Bible except here. No one ever humbled himself like Christ did. So no one will receive his greatest reward. And this is a principle taught throughout Scripture. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? Christ is our example. He humbled himself to death on a cross. God exalted him. The Bible tells us to Peter, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. What's important for us in our text here is that Christ's ascension came because of the cross. And that's how this you know whole thing... Because, I mean, if you just think, okay, he, he got ascended, and that's going to really offend you. I've not really, never really been offended at the ascension. You know, but I understand if he's connected with the cross, if you understand that connection, Hall Harris writes this. <clears throat> they had taken offense at some of Jesus' teaching, perhaps the graphic imagery of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And Jesus now warned them that if they thought this was a problem, there was an even worse cause for stumbling in store. His upcoming crucifixion. This ascent is to be accomplished through the cross. For John, Jesus' departure from this world and his return to the Father from one, form one continual movement from the cross to resurrection to ascension. They're all connected. Alright? So Yeshua is saying to the Jews who are following him, but offended by what he says, What's going to happen when you see the Son of Man go to the cross and there be crucified as a common criminal with the Romans and the Jews standing around mocking Him? What's going to happen then? I mean, if you're repelled by the words I'm saying, you're going to, how are you going to respond to those events that are soon going to transpire? You're really going to be offended at a Messiah who's put to death on a cross. And then he says in verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they're spirit and they're life. See, the disciples are grumbling again. Alright? And instead of saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, Yeshua says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. In other words, God rules over who has life. We in our flesh can't create life. Now, this is the same thing he told Nicodemus in chapter 3. You have to be born again. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you have a new birth. It's all about the divine initiative. He's looking at unbelief, and he's realizing they're not going to come because only the Spirit gives life. The Spirit has to quicken those who are dead in their trespasses. Those who cannot grasp his words are devoid of the Spirit, and that's why they don't get it. Now listen, the Jews knew life came from the Spirit. We go back to Ezekiel 37. He says, I'll put my Spirit within you, and you will come to life. I'll place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. Alright, Yeshua's words are Spirit and the natural man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. So the natural man can't grab Christ's words because he's natural. He doesn't have the Spirit. And so they're offended at them. Now, this verse, because of the larger context of John 6, may be making a contrast between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. Between Moses and Yeshua. Let me show you what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.6 Who has made us adequate servants of the new covenant. He's making a comparison in this chapter between the old and the new. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but look, the Spirit... What happened? The Spirit gives life. Well, you know, Yeshua said, my words are Spirit and life, and He tells us the new covenant gives life. So it is the Spirit 
It's not the flesh. The flesh just doesn't get it. Can't get it. Yeshua goes on to say, there are some of you who do not believe. Now, he's talking to these disciples that are following him. For Yeshua knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Now, it says he knew from the beginning. What beginning is that? Well, I think just based on what John has been trying to teach us here, it's the fact he's going back to one, back to one, one. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. He knew from all eternity who was going to believe and who wasn't because he called those he wanted to believe in him. He says, there are some of you who do not believe. Again, the facts are the natural man is unresponsive to the Word of God. They're unable to come. They rebel against the Scriptures. Look what Paul said in Romans 8. He says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. You ever seen anybody hostile towards God? It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. They can't do that. They can't subject to the law of God because they're flesh. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Alright, now let me ask you a question. Does faith please God? The Bible says it does, right? Faith pleases God. Well, if they who are in the flesh can't please God, can those who are in the flesh exercise faith? Not unless God quickens their spirit. Because if in my flesh I could exercise faith, then guess what? I'd be pleasing God and I'd be, in the, I'd be in my flesh pleasing God. But no, God has to do something first to transform the flesh to spirit. Then you can believe in Him. That's the plain teaching. And what we need to see, what we need to understand, is this is a work of God. This is what salvation is. Salvation is about what God does. Not about what we do. Now, people like to say, well, you know, some of these people, this crowd, this huge crowd, and they're not believing. And some people like to say, well, they didn't respond in faith because the message wasn't plain enough. Okay? It wasn't clear enough. You didn't speak it with sufficient love. You weren't really being very sensitive to the seeker. And you know, I lived under this trap early on in Christianity where, you know, you were had to share the gospel with everybody who came in contact. And guess what? If you didn't share the gospel and that person died, what happened to you? You ever heard those messages? Their blood is on your hand. Okay? Really? So it's my fault. I oh, I experienced a lot of guilt over that. Okay? But you know, and you're always, when you're sharing the gospel, you're thinking, saying the right things in the right order at the right time. Am I doing it all exactly right? We're called to share the gospel. Listen, if God doesn't do something, guess what? I don't care how good you say it. And how plain you make it. And how nice you are. It doesn't matter. Now here's what's, under, here's what's interesting here. Yeshua tells them. He says, you don't believe. And let me tell you why you don't believe. The next verse. He was saying, for this reason. Here's why you don't believe. I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So again. Yeshua teaches that the human decision to believe or not believe rested ultimately in God's elective purpose. He didn't view the unbelief of the disciples as an indication that he failed or he did something wrong or he didn't put it just right. Look at these words, people. These are not seeker-sensitive words. These are harsh words. This is the truth. But he says, listen. You guys don't believe. You heard all this stuff. You're offended by it. You don't want to come to me. Let me explain this to you. You can't come. Nobody can come. No one can come. Unless. What's the unless? Unless it's been granted him by the Father. Over and over and over in this chapter, Yeshua refers to the divine initiative. This is a chapter Arminians don't spend a lot of time in. Okay, because it's offensive to their view. Apart from God's empowerment, no one comes to Him in faith. This is a point He wants us to get, people. He said it so many times. So many times. Twice Yeshua says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What? So He's telling us the ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine enablement. It is only those whom the Father enables to believe that come to Yeshua in faith. These are all the people whom the Father gives to the Son 
as gifts. In other words, there is a love gift that the Father has given to the Son for His death on the cross. And that is the elect, His people. He has given them to Him as a gift over and over in this chapter. It has nothing to do with man's choice. It has to do with God's electing purposes. Then He says this, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. Oh, you've got to be drawn? And the phrase, no one, includes both classes of people, Jews and Gentiles. None of them. The words can come to me has to do with the inability of man. No one, neither Jew or Gentile, has the ability to come. Unless, there's a necessary condition here, people. Yeshua said that the necessary condition for someone coming to Him was God drawing them. Four times in this chapter, He tells unbelievers, you can't believe in Him unless you've been given by the Father. Because they're like, this is hard, this is tough. And yeah, don't worry, you're not elect, you can't get it. What? You're not going to hear that in a seeker-sensitive church, okay? And what's important to see here is that every time he states this truth of God's sovereign election, it's in response to unbelief. Very important. In 636, he tells his critics, you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. Then immediately adds in verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. And 643, Yeshua confronts their grumbling about him, and then he adds this in 44, no one comes to me unless the Father sent me draws him. Here in 64, Yeshua again confronts their unbelief, then he adds, this is the reason I've said unto you, no one come unless it's been granted him of the Father. Yeshua is telling this crowd of seekers, none of you can believe in me. None of you can have eternal life. Unless you are part of the elect of God. Unless God has chosen you, you're never going to understand what I'm saying. Now, that, I know that sounds harsh. And that's why most people don't talk about this. They don't teach it. But people, did you see it in the Bible? This chapter is loaded with this. And we looked at, you know, a couple times ago, this is not the only place you find this, alright? It's not like this is isolated teaching. Look at what Yeshua is saying here. Do you see the necessary condition in this verse? No one can come to me. Pretty plain. Nobody. Nobody comes. Unless. So there has to be an exception. The exception is unless the Father has granted him the ability to come. So a necessary condition is a circumstance in, whom, in whose absence a given event could not occur or a given thing could not exist. So unless you have this exception, you're not going to get it. In other words, if a man is not given to Yeshua by the Father, then a man cannot come to him. Because he doesn't want to. He doesn't care about God. Every person who comes to Yeshua can only come because he's given by the Father. That's the necessary condition. We must be given to Christ by the Father. These are the words of Christ, people. This is not the words of Augustine. These are not the words of Calvin. These are the Scriptures. Yeshua taught this. Now, you, you can argue over, well, maybe it doesn't mean that. I don't know what in the world else it can mean. It just seems too plain. And like I said, he didn't say it once, twice, three times. He says it four times in this chapter. And he's dealing with it. Context, context, context. Context is everything. These verses are pulled out of a chapter where he's talking about, do you bunch of people don't believe me? Let me explain why you don't believe. You're not called. That's what Paul said. To stump the cross is a stumbling block. But to the cold, it's not a stumbling block. Okay? So when a necessary condition for the occurrence of a given event, here is the is thing he's talking about is divine election, is found, then we have a circumstance in whose absence the event could not occur. And whenever it does occur, the thing exists. Everyone who's given by the Father comes. They come in faith. No one will come to Christ in faith if they're not given. Now, if everyone is given, then who would come? Everyone. Because everyone given will come. That's universalism, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Everybody is not given. And if no one is given, then who comes? Nobody. Nobody would be saved if no one was given. Because you can't come unless the Father gives you. But we know this is not true because Christ died to save some. And guess what? You know, people feel like, okay, Christ went to the cross and He died. And He says, 
And God's up there saying, oh, I sure hope someone believes in this. I sure hope someone trusts this because it's a lot to go through. You know? And he's just waiting. Oh, come on, someone trusts. It wasn't it at all. Okay, he went dying on the cross to pay the debt of a certain group that it was certain. Okay, it wasn't like, well, I hope somebody believes this. Those whom the Father hath chosen will trust in Christ, but only because they've been chosen by God. This is a difficult doctrine to accept. I understand that. It does away with free will. Okay? But, here's the problem with this doctrine. It's what the Bible teaches. Alright? We find it difficult to accept, I think, because our pride opposes the thought that God is in control of everything, including our salvation. People do not want a God who runs everything. They want a God that's more like a little genie. When they need Him, help me out. Other than that, stay out of my business. This is not the God of the Bible. Look at, look at verse 44 again and compare these two verses. They're very similar. No one can come to me, he says, both verses, unless the Father sent me draw him. And in verse 65, he says, unless it's been granted. So being granted, same as being drawn. Remember draw? We talked about draw. Helkuo means to drag by irresistible superiority. Unless God drags you, you ain't coming. And guess what? If God does draw you, you're coming. Okay? You have to be drawn. You have to be given by the Father. Period. And again, I don't care if you like it or not. This We're just talking about this is what the Bible says. You understand where I'm going with this whole seeker-sensitive thing, right? This is not to, you know, Yeshua is not following the status quo for our generation. 666 says, As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. Great verse for the apostasy, right? The Greek here is ektato. And it's better translated as a result or from this time or for this reason. Alright, so the best way to translate this would be for this reason. Many of his disciples withdrew. These disciples were not believers. They were natural men without the Spirit. Therefore, they found Yeshua's discourse intolerable. They were following Him. If you go up in the discourse, Yeshua said, you follow me because you saw the miracles. Because I fed you. So you're following me. You like you want more food, you want more show. But you don't like my words. His sermon wasn't seeker sensitive. It converted popular enthusiasm for Yeshua into disgust. Is that what our message is supposed to do? We do it exactly backwards today. We do everything we can to draw a crowd. And see, listen, if you want to draw a crowd, if your goal is a crowd, you got to be careful what you say. Okay? Because everybody gets offended at something. So you have to make sure your messages are really nebulous. Don't talk about anything too important. You know, Just make people feel good. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants you blessed, happy, everything. You know, oh, great. Phew, let's go home. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul was not a believer in the health, wealth, gospel. That, that guy went through all kinds of stuff. He wasn't a believer in the health, wealth, gospel. Alright? Because of Yeshua's sermon here, because it wasn't seeker-sensitive, like I said, people, it was disgusting, the crowds, and they're leaving. It, Yeshua's words were kind of like a winnowing fan. It blew the chaff away, and there's this small remnant left when he's done. He's separating the wheat from the chaff here. And basically when he gets done, it's like he's got the 12 apostles there. And that's about it. All the rest of this crowd is so offended, they're gone. So Yeshua said to the 12, uh, do you want to go away also? <laughs> Are you guys leaving me too? It seems like that's all that was left. There may be some more, but that's the impression you get. There's just the 12 left. Now Yeshua's question here assumed a negative answer. That's, we can tell it from the Greek construction. All right. He undoubtedly asked it, not because he was, you know, I wonder about you guys. No, he's just saying, I want to confirm your commitment. Are you guys going to stick around? So Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
This is what Yeshua said in verse 63. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Peter gets it and he said, your words are life. We're not going anywhere. Peter's finally starting to catch on. Let me ask you something. Why does Simon Peter always seem to be the spokesperson for the twelve? Huh? I think he was the oldest. Alright? And here's the thing. Tradition says he was probably around, he was married. So, according to Jewish custom, he was probably around 20 or 25. Alright? Here's what will blow your mind. Tradition says that John, the Apostle John, was probably 8 to 10 years old. 8 to 10 years old. That's not people's view of the Apostles, is it? So, the disciples on average, Yeshua's disciples, were about 15 years old. Now, I can't definitively prove that. Tradition tells us that. I can't prove that. But let me show you a text why I think it's so. Alright, let's go to the Scripture, see if I can give you some hint as to why I'm leaning this way anyway. This is Matthew chapter 17. When they came to Capernaum, we're in the same town we're in in our text, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? So he comes to Peter. Obviously, they think Peter's some kind of leader in this group, so he's asking him about Messiah. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Yeshua spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Yeshua said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that you do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Uh, what about the temple tax for the rest of them? How many times in Scripture do you see Yeshua and Peter off on their own? When it's a small group, who is it? Peter, James, and John. Okay? Well, then at the least you got James and John somewhere. Right? How come only Yeshua and Peter are paying the temple tax? Why is the tax only for them? The Bible tells us. Anybody know? No one knows? Let's look at Exodus 30. <clears throat> this is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for the shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is a contribution to Yahweh. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to Yahweh. So who pays the temple tax? 20 years old and up. So what's that say about the rest of the disciples? They're under 20. Okay? They're under 20. These guys are teenagers and they turn the world upside down. Teenagers! Peter goes on to say, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These are both perfect, active, indicative. Salvation here is in the perfect tense, which means it's a past event, culminated act, settled state of being. We believed and we continue to believe. We know, we come to know and we still know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, there's a manuscript problem here. Okay? The King James says, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Alright, it's a little longer. The shorter text that the New American Standard has is supported by the better ancient Greek manuscripts. Write this down. P75, B, C, D, L, and W. Those manuscripts. All right? They're the better manuscript. They support this. So the chances are that later scribes inserted the additional words from Martha's confession from John 11 or from Peter's confession from Matthew 16. Alright? So I said, ah... Peter said this before, but he added some other words. So let's put those in here, all right? So, I mean, it's not like it make a huge difference. just want you aware of it, all right? And I think this is the better reading that, that is used here. You're the Holy One of God. Now, this is an unusual designation for Yeshua. This, this term is used one other, new time, one other time in the New Testament. Somebody else calls Yeshua this. Anyone know who it is? A demon. <laughs> That's the only other time it's used. The demon says, we know who you are, the Holy One of God, because they do know. Okay? In the Tanakh, the title Holy One belongs particularly to Yahweh. Isaiah uses this term for Yahweh more than any other Old Covenant writer. 
It's his favorite name for Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Now the Jews knew this phrase. So when Peter says, you're the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, they, basically Peter's affirming, you are Yahweh. See, he's getting it. After he saw Yeshua walk on the water, teleport their boat, they're finally starting to get it. They understand who he is. You are God. Good job, Peter. You're finally catching on. Why is he catching on? Because he's been given life by the Spirit. Okay? Yeshua answered them, did I not myself choose you? The twelve, and yet one of you is the devil. You know, it might appear that the twelve chose Yeshua, and normally that's how it was. Normally, if you wanted to be a, a Talmudim of a rabbi, you would find a rabbi and you would go to the rabbi and you would say, Rabbi, can I be like you? And you're asking him, do you think I have the ability, do you think I have it in me that I could be like you? But here, Yeshua, the rabbi, is choosing his own Talmudim. He chose them. These particular men. And here's the interesting thing. Even among the twelve that he chose, one of them is a devil. One of them is a devil. He chose him to be with him, but listen, he wasn't chosen for salvation. So he's a disciple, but he's not a believer. The word devil here is diabolos from dia, which means through or between, and balo, which means to cast out. So it means a false accuser, a slander, one who utters false charges or misrepresents or defames or damages another's reputation. Diabolos does not have an article with it here in the more reliable Greek manuscripts. Alright? It's not ha or the Diabolos. Alright? And it usually does. So that probably means that one of the twelve is devil-like. That's what he's saying. Not that you're the devil, you're, you're really, a, you know, he's not saying, Judas, you're a devil, but you're devil-like. You know, you're being influenced by the devil in what you're doing. And then in verse 71, now this, verse 71, is Lazarus, Yeshua's done. And Lazarus is explaining to us later, okay? Uh, he meant Judas. Just so you guys are wondering, you know, who's the devil? It's Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. One of the twelve, he's going to betray him. So Lazarus just throwing this on there, and he, this is this is Judas. <clears throat> this is the first mention of Judas in the fourth gospel. First time we see it. And listen, every time he's identified, every time you see Judas's name, you see tacked on it the one who betrayed Christ. <laughs> every time, don't just throw out his name without saying that. And Matthew records that his betrayal was a fulfillment of prophecy from Jeremiah. Alright? Now, why bring up Judas here? Seems kind of weird in this text. We're going through this text, and all of a sudden, why throw Judas in here? Here's my two cents on it, okay? Talking about unbelief in this text. Talking about these crowds. They can't get the words of Yeshua. No matter what he says, they don't get it. They're offended. They just want to leave. I think the story of, story of Judas illustrates what Yeshua has been teaching throughout this discourse. This is an illustration. Unless Yahweh draws you, you don't come. This shows the depravity of the human heart and how desperately we need God's sovereign grace for the new birth. Yeshua chose Judas to be an apostle. He was with Yeshua for three years. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. He lived with them 24-7 for three years. And he did not believe and was lost. Why? Because he wasn't given by the Father. Again, just a, you know, after all this teaching, he throws in an illustration at the end. Here's, here's, just so you get this, this guy was with us. Couldn't got any closer. They hung out together. They ate together. They did, you know, it wasn't a, guys, meet me at the synagogue nine to five. We're having a little discipleship class. They were with him everywhere he went. Okay? The Jews tell you, if you're a disciple, you follow the rabbi into the bathroom. Because you just want to be like, you want to watch everything he does and what he says about certain situations. You know, when a, when a, when an Orthodox Jew goes into the bathroom, he gives thanks to God. Does that make sense? He thanks God for the orifices that he has that allows him to eliminate this stuff so he can go on living. I mean, they thank God for everything. 
the last time you thanked God, you could go to the bathroom. If you can't go for a while, you'll thank him when you do. Okay? (laughs) He was there. Judas saw it all and he did not believe because he wasn't. Just an illustration. Emphasizing the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. All right? So this chapter, people, I think is just a powerful teaching on the sovereignty of God. John 6.44 has always been one of my favorite verses, but after going through context here, putting it into context and going through this whole chapter, it is so much more powerful because it's tied with so many other verses. And when you understand the whole thing about, it's all about faith. Yeshua didn't use seeker-sensitive approach to people. He did the opposite. His words seem designed to purposely push people away because they're following for the wrong reason. Now, you, you guys have got it all wrong. Listen, I'm not about that. I'm not a political messiah. I'm going to die on a cross. You have to accept that. They couldn't do it. All right, so let me ask you this in conclusion. It's almost time to eat. Let me ask you this. I want you to think about this with me, all right? Can we, by anything that we say, cause the elect to not trust Christ? So there's nothing I can do, nothing I can say. If someone is elect, I'm not going to do something that they're going to lose their election, they're going to fall away, right? Can't do anything, right? You all agreed on that, all right? So let me ask you this. Can we, by anything we say, cause the non-elect to trust Christ? We don't have a, we get this scheme together and put it together just right. We can't get the non-elect in? No. All right. Then why do we shy away from difficult doctrine? Why don't we always just speak the truth in love? We always try to fix it so those around us don't get offended by the truth. Now listen, I'm not saying you should offend people. I'm saying the Word of God offends people. You don't need to add to it, alright? I think we should be nice, and we should be nice to people, but I don't think we should water down the truth. Well, okay, if you see it that way. No, just here's the truth. This is what the Bible says. No, we we seem to work so hard to disguise what the Bible says. The Bible talks about election, but people don't want to talk about that because that's hard and people don't like that. It's the Bible. It's not our methods that bring people to Christ. It's the sovereignty of God. And if we could understand that, we would be free from all these little things that church thinks that has to do. The saddest thing today to me is you know, Yeshua tried to drive a crowd away. The church does everything to get a crowd. But when they get it, they do nothing with it. I mean, they don't teach the Bible. They just make them feel good and send them home. Because if you don't make them feel good, they don't come back. And that's not what the church is about. It's not about our methods, people. Our job is to take the Word of God and tell people this is what it says. And try to explain what it means by what it says to those people. And if they don't like it, we can't do anything about that. Okay? Again, let me make this clear. I'm not saying you should be in offense. Some Christians act like they're supposed to be in offense. Okay? You're not to be in offense. I work with some guys at the Naval Shipyard. They thought they were supposed to be in offense. Okay? There was a loading dock there, and everyone would go out and eat their lunch on the loading dock. When, the, when it was nice, you know, they sit on the loading dock, and everyone's eating your lunch. Well, the Christians would go out there, and they'd sit on the loading dock, and they'd read their Bible out loud. Why? They're just, you know, they're trying to be spiritual. These Christians will go in the bathroom and write scriptures on the bathroom walls. And I confronted them. Oh, they're persecuting us. I said, no, you're being jerks. Okay? Those guys are out there trying to enjoy their lunch and you're reading the scripture. You know, they, if they want to read the Bible, they'll read it. It's not your job to read scripture and annoy people. You're just annoying them is all you're doing. I said, you guys need to get in that bathroom and clean those bathroom walls because that is wrong. Well, someone might get saved. I'm like, listen, people, that is against the, you know, you're damaging someone's property because you want someone to get saved. You know, that's not the way to do it. So, again, Yeshua's words were offensive, but he was not, okay? (laughs) I don't have one. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you this morning for your word. This is a difficult text, Lord. It really is because our society is so seeker sensitive. Our society is so touchy feely, so sensitive, so easily offended. Anything Yeshua says bugs us. Lord, help us to deal with the truth. Help us to prostrate ourselves before you and just accept what you say because we love you. Help us to realize your sovereign control over the universe, over salvation, over everything. And may we bow to your sovereignty, Lord. Worshiping you as the God you are. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us every day. Father, we thank you that now we can partake of this meal together. We thank you for providing food for us, Lord, in abundance. We are so greatly blessed here in this country. I pray you'd use this time as we eat that we'd be a time of fellowship, Lord, that we would not only feed ourselves, but we'd minister to one another. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.